Welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan, and I'm left of center. And I'm Rich, and I tend to lean a little bit more to the right. But the bottom line is, is together we try to look for the balance of what it means to be human in today's world. Welcome to Living in the Matrix, everyone. Uh, I'm Jonathan. This is Rich. Say hi, Rich. Hey, everybody. Great to be back. It's good. It's good to have you back, bro. You've been gone. You've been traveling and uh, working. Give everybody an update on uh, what you've been doing. Uh, well, it's just been really, really busy work week, you know, um, at the end of a quarter. Uh, always a busy time in sales and spent some time in upstate New York for an important uh, offsite event. Pasadena and at a, at a business conference. And then last week I was in Indianapolis for another conference helping out a partner play. So um, it's been been crazy. It was an amazing quarter in terms of business wise over like, you know, 350% of plan. So it's been a great quarter, but now it's time to kind of get back to the roots and to do the things that we love and that are important in terms of mental and spiritual and physiological debate. So uh, great to be back, man. Awesome. And before we gloss over something important that you said, because you kind of just threw it out there and then didn't talk about it. When we started this podcast, you and I have really been exploring the concept of manifesting. We really started manifesting last summer. What is your perception? Because you were literally having the best year of your career. I What's am. your perception kind of in self-reflection? How much do you think that played a part? Because you and I have been sort of actively dialoguing and practicing this concept of manifesting. How much do you give credit to that? Well, you know, it's funny. I'm trying to figure out if it's tapping into the unified field through TM, through transcendental meditation, or the idea of actually willfully manifesting. And I will tell you that I don't willfully intentionally manifest that often. I will tell exactly. you that straight up. Um, I mean, I don't even pray as much as I used to. I used to pray all the time. I'd get up in the morning, do my stretches, you know, open a passage of the Bible. I memorize Psalm 138, which is about being grateful and thankful, Jonathan. Yeah. And um, what, what happened going into this year was it was a new job, right? I had come off of being laid off with a lot of my great coworkers um, in October of last year. I got this mm -hmm. job relatively quickly through an old friend. And so we dove in. And it was a big struggle. And I was looking at myself and um, had some back issues. And lo and behold, um, the t place I was getting my back worked on um, had a TM place. And so I was interested. The guy that works on my back had actually chatted about it before, said it was helpful with his divorce. It was instrumental as he got through a really, really tough time. So I dove into this, started a process, and um, ended up meeting somebody who actually knows Keanu Reeves, believe it or not. So we were talking about that as we were going through the matrix. We'll keep that on the side note, but what I'm getting at is by doing that and by spending time in my mind, being still, refreshing, being relaxed, and just tapping into that unified field of, of consciousness, right? When you get to that level of real deep meditation through a mantra, I believe that the heart work was already starting to work. So I, I, I noticed that I would my eyes would, would, would well up, not necessarily with emotion, but just something mm -hmm. going on. And I started feeling more things about my heart and other people and, and care. And, you know, I don't know what the end result was, but I didn't really manifest things the way I would, you would typically see somebody on Instagram tell you about how to manifest, right? I just kind of went with the punches and you, do you think you believed because at the core of manifesting is belief. Do you think you believed you would have a good year? 
I did not believe I was going to have a good year um, really? back in the spring. Back in the spring. Well, yeah. Led, when, did, when did this job start? Well, the job started in December, and okay. um, most of my and it colleagues, started with a bang. Tell tell them why it started with a bang. Um, well, I don't know if it started with a bang. What's that? When your whole crew got let go. Okay, so 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 here's what happened. There was a layoff in, in January of this year. And no, I was, so you got hired in December. Yes, and, and then, then there was a layoff in, in January. Yeah. Now that yes. affected a few t- transitory people, some engineers and a couple of sales devs. But then after I'd already started meditating and diving into the unified field, there was another layoff and it was a decimation, right? It got rid right. of a lot of people. And including you myself. survived. I survived. <laughs> That's what yeah. I think you led to be important. And, and Jonathan, and this is what Sean yeah. talks about, right? It's right. about you are in that space. And I call it um, serendipity that I'm the last person standing or call it um, the pendulum mm-hmm. swinging back because I was tapping into the source. And that's, remember when I said, when you when you say going back, tap, you know, getting that pendulum swing back to where you want it to be, because it's been a bad side. Mm-hmm. He goes, yeah, well, you tap into that by tapping into you know, meditation, a unified field. That's how you get that swing back. And so it's been real. It just hasn't, you know, I'm trying to figure out, I always like to be, there are times, Jonathan, where you and I, we talked about me dwelling on something like that one big deal I was working on and I obsessed over it to the level that I actually made a mistake and we didn't get the deal. Now it's all all, all to be said, whether we're actually going to end up getting it later on, but there are things where I had a great chat today with a guy who loves our podcast, who I met in the sauna, who I told him about our podcast, who now wants to have regular meetings with me. And what we talked about today was the way you manifest and bring things together is you are absolutely present in the moment. Mm-hmm. Your kids are going to be legacy of, you know, legacies. You're going to leave behind a legacy of love and kindness and, and abundance, not because you're obsessed about what that looks like in the future, but because you're doing the things today Mm-hmm. investing in them, loving on them, nurturing in them, hanging out with your spouse and going through arguments and having a groundedness so they understand what that looks like. And by the time you get there, it's already being manifested along the way. So the idea is everything you do is intentional, whether you eat or whether you look at that sunrise, everything you do in that moment. We talked about enjoying a meal and, and thinking about what it's going to taste like and what the energy can do to your body and how you have gratitude. And if you do that, or you do the dishes, or you do expenses, you do them in the moment, and you focus and, and do that, and don't worry about other things, and those mm-hmm. other things will come as as part and parcel of you doing the things in the present moment. Mm-hmm. That was a long diatribe, but still, that's what, that's what we talked about today, and I absolutely believe it. But here's the thing that I think you did do, because you and I talked a lot about it when you got your job, is you did choose to believe you and I had many conversations. I don't think you're giving yourself credit for how much you did do. Okay. And I think it, you know, like going through that whole layoff, I remember how it's like, cause here's the thing. Once you start ascending, once you start elevating your life and going after it, there's always that first shelf. You, you reach it and you're like, hell yes. Like this is possible. I've elevated my life. And then something happens that tries to knock you down. That layoff, it, it played with you, but it also reminded you that you were supposed to be there. You were the one they kept. Yes. And I think that's the thing is it's important when we get to those shelf levels to look for signs that remind us we're supposed to be here. 
because it's easy to forget all the work and slog it was just to get up one elevation. The hardest part is most people don't get to the first elevation. They don't. They don't get up to that first level to go, oh, shit, it's possible. Yes. They just assume it's not possible. And you and I had many conversations where you said, I'm just going to give this a try. You believed in yourself. And that's that first level of courage. Like Dr. Hawkins, that's 200. All you're doing is believing in yourself. And I heard you talk about it a lot. And it's not, it is not coincidental that you're having 350% of plan. For people who don't understand that, what does that mean? Well, it means um, making a lot of money and also trying to be 350% more than they asked you to. Exactly. Yeah. My, my quota was, you know, call it a hundred and something thousand. I ended up selling 444. Um, right. So it was, it was pretty awesome. It was based on nurturing some great relationship with, with some iconic brands. Um, and, um, you know, they love us and, and we love them and it was effortless to be honest, you know, in many ways. Um, and I think it's a good fit for you too. Yeah. It's a scale. And this is what you've got to learn about life is like, how do you do the things that you know what you can do and you have control over and invest in those so they lead the biggest outcomes? Don't bang your head against something that is an outside chance that's just going to leave you frustrated. Invest in the things and double down on them, right? So. Yeah. No, I'm just, I'm glad to have you back. It's, I, I like doing this with you rather than without you. (laughs) And uh, we had some great guests, um, but it's always better with you. And uh, because I think you provide a different balance than I do. And I think it's always better to have. uh, So, but for our our listeners today, you'll notice we don't have a guest today. And we have been talking about a, a subject for quite a long time. And I think Rich and I have the same ideals but not the same tax. And that is the topic of transgender. And uh, so I floated this idea by Rich, I think, what about two, three months ago and said, what if we did an episode on this? And just to talk about it as two people having a real conversation, um, because it's a very, very touchy subject that this concept of transgender has exploded onto our culture really over the last probably what seven eight years especially since social media yes and it's just it's created such an intensity that we thought it would be really cool to just talk about it maybe let a little bit of the oxygen out of the bubble by talking about it and seeing you know sharing real feelings and really kind of talking about how we feel about it Um, i think both rich and i feel comfortable about sharing that but it's not that we're going to solve the problem, but by communicating and talking about it, hopefully we can come to some sense of better understanding. Because I'll tell you, from looking at a lot of the data before we, as I was preparing for this and looking at a lot of the data, I realized, you know, how much I didn't know. And um, so why don't we start? And uh, so a big part of this is trying to really be cognizant and aware and understanding. Um, and to start, uh, I thought I'd share uh, a little bit of about my perspective uh, that Rich and I talked about. So I have a friend who actually transitioned. Uh, I was in a men's Bible study group with this person and we went to the same church. 
and his name was Dave. And then I moved away and then we stayed friends on Facebook. And then Dave came out as Debbie. And um, it was kind of a surreal experience. It was my first strong connection because I've met transgender people before. When I was uh, in business in 1993 with my partner, his uncle was transgender. Uh, so I had experiences and I've actually um, met people who, through my blog, who were transgender, but never in a deep relationship where I knew them and they actually went through the transition. And uh, there were obvious, really interesting experiences with that, that you can probably imagine. But I remember just going, huh, I would love to know what Debbie thinks. Like it was at the beginning, it was like, almost this, even learning to say a different name became, oh, something is different here. And I think that's the first thing that I want to talk about with you, Rich, is what do you think this uh, concept, this the idea of being transgender, of saying I'm first a female or a male, and then becoming the other or they or none, because you can include that, what do you think that it's done from your perspective to the psyche of America? What is the tension for you about someone saying, I am male becoming female or like Dave to Debbie? Yeah. Um, for me, I think it's, it's a lot of different things. Um, part of it, Jonathan, is I think a rallying cry for a civil rights kind of process, right? We've gone through the point of the 60s um, where African-Americans definitely um, underrepresented, marginalized, and we had the civil rights movement, which was absolutely critical to try to bring equality um, to the masses. Mm -hmm. We know the idea of redlining and the, and the great migration and, and, and how, you know, there's been some unfortunate kind of side effects of how we've treated the African-American community. And then in the 70s, you had Stone, Stonewall, right? And you had the LGBTQ community. Um, that kind of came mm -hmm. out. And I think what we're seeing now is, um, hey guys, this is happening more and more. You can't avoid it. It's real. And let's um, embrace it and try to help these people out. And because they're real people, right? So there is mm -hmm. the social um, civil rights aspect of it. Um, but it's also gaining a lot of notoriety because um, you're seeing it um, start to interject with um, women's sports. So there's so mm -hmm. many different compartments that we have going on with this. And I don't know how we want to fully divvy it up, Jonathan, but you and I have agreed. Well, let's do this. Let's talk about what lead, with love, right? lead with love, lead with understanding, yeah. but also realize that there's a lot of different components to this. So I'm, I, let's just say so first and foremost, what I would say is it's become more visible because A, it's become more of a kind of a social justice, more of a um, civil rights movement. But it's also gained dramatically in terms of pure numbers. Like you can't mm -hmm. avoid it. It's, it's basically imagine if, if you watched, you know, a community have five, you know, people with cancer and three years later, there was 20,000 people with cancer, right? And you'd never seen anything like it. So I'm not trying to use it in a negative standpoint, but going back to what I talked about earlier this morning or this, this afternoon, in 2007, there was one clinic that was dedicated in the United States to transgender kinds of, you know, body dysphoria, people that would, would go in and they would ask for help or guidance or perhaps some kind of ways to 
you know, with, with hormones or any kinds of um, notions that was dedicated to the transgender community. There are now 300. So you've gone from one in 2007 to 300 today. So the question really is, is that a construct of physiology and genetics and people just waking up immediately? Or is there more of a social construct to what's going on there? And there's a gal named Abigail Schreier, who's from Columbia, who's had a book that's been you know, um, highlighted by The Economist and The London Times. And it's about, you know, in her mind, some of the rush and the what we call social contagion that is part of the trans movement, not just it as such and as a whole. That That's the first thing I want to say. So one of the things I'll pull out of there is this cultural shift as documented by the... Tra- so in what was the first year when there was one... 2007. 2007, there's one, and now there's 300. Part of my research I found was in 2017, so this is about in the middle, there was about 150,000 people in the United States who actively declared they were transgender. And so if you do the math, that's about 500 per clinic. So per year, that sounds about right, um, depending how big the clinics are. So 150,000 uh, identified? At, and this is in 2017. Out of what, 330 million? Yes. So, but that's actively declared. So you probably got to guess the number's probably double or triple or maybe even quadruple. And I think the number is dramatically larger now. That would Um, make sense because that would, that wouldn't even be um, in, in the, in the spectrum. So typically what we've seen is the trans movement. If you look, if you were to identify the global population as trans it's about 0.05%, I believe. And that number is 0.00045. So that's like two one hundredths um, off in that regard. So anyway, um, we're going well, to let me, general let rabbit me, hole here. Actually, <laughs> let me ping on something that you said, which is, and I'm going to share a thought and tell me what you think of it, is you mentioned that social aspect of, I think we are reaching a point that we are living the outcome of a postmodern society. Okay. And a big part of that postmodern society was the absence of historical religious morality that defined culture. And now as that broke down really heavily, as we turned into the new millennium, um, people started really recognizing, Hey, I don't have to worry about my community's judgment of me. Yes. Because nobody goes to church meaningfully anymore. Um, I mean, there are, there are obviously people who do, but it's come down dramatically. Its impact on culture has been dramatically reduced. Right. And now people are free to say, hey, who do I think I am? And there is no rule because I have freedom to define myself. And I think because of that social dynamic, the idea is magnified because culturally, when you see it on Instagram or TikTok or wherever, or any kind of social media or even public media in the news, you start recognizing this is there and it forces people to really deal with it. What do you think of that? I think you're spot on. I think that 
first and foremost, um, you're absolutely right. We are in a postmodern world where um, the big meta narratives have all come crashing down. Like here is the end all be all of how we got here. Here's economics. Here's, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, there was, there was Marx, there was Freud and there's people realizing there's a lot of nuances and it's not one big meta narrative. And that same thing holds for religion, right? We're seeing the people, um, escape that confine and they're going off and they're doing their own thing and they're getting a lot of information from a lot of different sources right i mean the the pete ends of the world which is like the bible for normal people where you've got you know people who grew up in a dogmatic situation they always had something scratching in the back of their head they go that doesn't seem right and like oh my gosh i'm meeting like-minded people who felt the same thing and there's freedom here right and it's like gosh you know I was, I would never been really comfortable in this body. I've always shaped the wrong way. I've always wanted to play with different things. And I knew there was something different going on. What does that end up looking like? Right. And so I think the idea of postmodernism is uh, unfortunately the end result of postmodernism is nihilism. That's what we talked about Mm -hmm. with our friend, um, Brittany. So there there has to be um, a stopping point, but at the same time, there is this room for expansion and for um, growth. And also I think COVID was also a big slap in the face of not only are we in a postmodern culture, but uh, I'm really confused on a lot of different things about what real structures are, right? What, what, What I can trust, you know, there's a lot of confusion going on. I'm in this new medium of being displaced from people. And mm-hmm. I'm confused and depressed more than I've ever been, right? Because I don't know what's gonna what the future looks like, right? There's a lot of uns- got really small, yes, like really small for the first time in decades. COVID disrupted everything. So we had COVID. What do you think that did to the movement? Well, I, I think one of the things it did is it allowed a lot more autonomy in terms of freedom of expression. Mm-hmm. When COVID was there, you had people that were having a hard time dealing with the new um, digital yeah. communication, right? And so there was forgiveness, and and for all good reason, right? There was a lot of people who said, Let, "Let's look at this." You know, we're having a hard time communicating. We have a hard time getting assignments done. I think there was a lot of other kinds of freedoms, like I don't know what's going on with my body. I'm having a hard time chatting with my parents about it. You know, it could be a lot of different things, but I think a lot of people came out of COVID in terms of like the sense of the connective tissue that normally people have in support groups were, were gone. And so now, yeah. well, the support groups became more digital and more impersonal, if you would, and yet there was still influence, right? I think there's a yeah. lot of that going on. And so there's a lot of disinformation. And a lot of people lost a lot of people. That's correct. Like that's one of the things we don't really talk about COVID is in COVID, what, what was the final death rate? Like 5 million people? Like um, that's a million, a million at least in the United States, right? I think we lost over a million. Yeah. 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 And so it's like that sense of pervasiveness of death, like this, this thing could kill you really changes people. And I think that may have magnified the sense of freedom. I, I love that we're starting on this idea because I think that's the best part of transgenderism is someone coming to a sense of integrity about what they think they are. The journey of who they are is for them to determine. But I love that part because when I sat with Debbie, who I used to know as Dave, and I have to let go of my sense of this is now Dave. But I wanted, I I sat there and we met at Facebook 
and for lunch. And I just listened to her. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is her. I know you keep saying that. And, and it's, it's an intentional, it's not like an it actual has to be intentional it's effort, right? You have to think about it intentionally. Yes. So I'm having to change my construct that is historical for as long as we've been alive as human beings. This is a new construct. Doesn't mean it didn't exist, but it's the first time we're grappling with it like this. And I had to tell myself, Deb, I remember sitting there going, don't say Dave. <laughs> and it was like, oh God, because I wanted to empathize. This was a friend of mine. You know, this wasn't someone who I didn't know. I knew this person well. Most conversations, a, right? You got some right. probably intimate chats with a small group of men. Yep. And this is the first time I had actually met Debbie and in person. So it was, um, but I remember feeling for Debbie at that time, man, I'm glad for the freedom this person is experiencing. And I think that's the beginning of the journey for those who are watching it happen or those who are experiencing it is that moment of freedom is what I think everybody wants for those people. Okay. But the problem is, is the dynamic doesn't end there. Okay. And so to tee that up, what I want to do is I want to tee up a conversation that uh, Rich and I had before. And I were forced to undress in the presence of Leah, a six foot four tall biological male fully intact with male genitalia 18 times per week. Some girls opted to change in bathroom stalls and others used the family bathroom to avoid this. When we tried to voice our concerns to the athletic department, we were told that Leah's swimming and being in our locker room was a non-negotiable and we were offered psychological services to attempt to re-educate us to become comfortable with the idea of undressing in front of a male. To sum up the university's response, we, the women, were the problem, not the victims. We were expected to conform, to move over, and shut up. Our feelings didn't matter. The university was gaslighting and fear-mongering women to validate the feelings and identity of a male. So when I see that, I think that is the beginning of the tension. As anybody who's transgender in a world that already exists, uh, there's always a give and take of respect and love for each other that is we hope for. And that's all I want to do now is listen to that journey because I don't wish Dave or I mean, Debbie. See, I just did it. See, that's the thing is it, it's a transition. Um, when the person who's transgender starts living out that life, there are constructs that they're going to rub up against. And one of those is sports. That's probably the easiest one to sort of talk about. And what are the impacts of that? Uh, I'm going to let you start with this one. I, what's your perspective on this? Well, I was listening, believe it or not, to Fox News a couple of nights ago, and the only liberal on the five that comes out at four o'clock put a hard stop on biological men competing in women's sports. She's on the left of everyone there. Definitely um, pro-choice, right? All that, you know, get rid of guns, right? Global warming is real. All of the things you can think of that are traditional um, left of center um, progressive person. And she's always the, the, the counter, right, to the uh, people that are on the right. And she said, I don't believe that it's fair for women who have worked their whole life in NCAA sports who are competing like Riley Gaines to then be shut down, where you've got people like Leah Thomas, 
who mm-hmm. um, was 400th and became first and second, was blowing out the field. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people would come to the table and say, well, the difference isn't that strong. They're taking p- blockers, et cetera, et cetera. But, and in fact, David Pakman, who's a very left, left, um, left of center person, had Dennis Prager on, who's very right. And the idea of women, biological men in women's sports, even David Pakman said, in several sports, it's an absolute advantage. I'm just going to throw it out there. And so there, there, this is what's interesting, Jonathan, because we're actually in a place where we're actually bringing together obje- objective truths, which are that this man and this woman, both at the top of their game, if the man was to compete with the woman in any kind of strength lifting or, 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 or tennis, Serena mm-hmm. Williams would have been um, kicked off Letterman 10 years ago because she said, I don't want to um, go against um, the men competing with me. They destroy me. There's just no comparison. And mm-hmm. she is amazing, right? This is a, a very the greatest. One of the greatest, right? And she's the greatest she, tennis player, but it, it's that's an important distinction. She is probably the closest to a a masculine, like she's a powering she figure. Is. She's a, she's absolutely like close. physical like right of, there. Absolutely. She's she could probably beat people in the top 100. Yeah. So going back to what, this is a very easy discussion for me, um, Jonathan. It's very easy for me to say that's an unfair thing, especially for people who have dedicated their whole lives to this process, right? And to me, it shows a great deal of unfairness to take a 0.5% or a couple others. Because so, I want to make a quick distinction here. Um, mm-hmm. just a couple days ago, there was a, um, a, a female kind of like tech event where a whole bunch of guys came in and registered as non-binary and they showed up and they took over the entire place. And it was a, it was a big flummox mess. And what was really sad about that was these guys clearly were not non-binary. They just did it to take advantage. And there's going to be a point in time where somehow, somewhere, you have to realize that somebody's actually taking advantage of a scenario versus really going through a lot of pain and suffering. And if Leah Thomas really was gender dysmorphic uh, and had that terrible time, then he probably would have chopped his appendage off and then became Leah and transformed. Now, I'm not saying everybody should do that. Kylie, what is his name? Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner didn't do it. And um, Caitlyn seems to be living a good, healthy life. But going back to it, that, that's a line that I will not cross. And that is, I, I do not believe biological men should be competing in women's sports, especially at the levels of what we've been seeing in the news, especially with, and, uh, on that video. And, and here's my perspective, because I take, because uh, I think that's sort of like that first ring of the conflict circle. It's easy to define because you're saying, men or women changing gender it's more pronounced when a man becomes a woman that they can uh overtake the women who are at the very very top like you said uh well, how many the, trans uh, men are, are going to be competing how why, why don't you show me the amount of a trans women in the world of, of a female transitioning to a man and competing against the men's sport why don't we why don't we talk about that for a few moments so here's how I would break that down is this is the first time when we're really – so all sports are typically defined by a construct of gender. Uh, are there any sports that actually intermingle? Although there are women playing curling. men's sports. Curling. Curling, true. But for I the vast majority of sports, they're separated by gender because males, physiological males uh, are – 
have more strength and capacity from a muscle density perspective. So it's a biological advantage. Correct. And the problem is, is that that has always been very clearly defined. And to when a transgender man takes that advantage and goes over to the other category, he's sort of creating a new category. Correct. And that creates an unfair advantage as shown by what's happening in sports with transgender athletes, that they are now obliterating women's records. Correct. And so therein lies the question of as what's the most healthy way to solve this is I think the reality is, is that if you're, if someone is transgender and wants to compete in sports, because sports is a choice, it's not a a life-giving situation where you have to survive. You choose sports. Not saying you shouldn't choose sports, but if you're transgender, you have to recognize you're choosing something and going against the construct that has existed really since the Athens games. I mean, it's like since we've been doing sports and that's the conflict for me like you said, is when a biologically born male changes sex over a female, they still maintain some significant biological advantages that women could never produce on their own. And I think that makes it a third category for me that says, hey, listen, whole new, whole new world. And uh, that's where I, I want to protect the integrity but recognize it that do we need to create a transgender games or something where athletes mm-hmm. who are transgender compete against each other, but can you leverage the biological advantage inherent to who you were born as? I don't know if that, because history is, it's not like we're, we're projecting here. There are clear examples of people who do transgender change from a biological male to a, a female and dominate where they didn't do that before. So I I think I'm with you on this one that there's either got to be a third category because there's got to be some recognition on the part of the transgender person to say, I'm the one changing the game and take responsibility for that. It's okay. We start with freedom, but then there's a sense of responsibility that has to come with that freedom. Freedom with consequences, right? Like you mentioned, you're going to rub up against certain constraints, right? And so and, and the question also is, and this is Jordan Peterson's biggest concern, is I'm okay to call you by your preferred pronouns. As a one-on-one person to defer respect and understanding to a conversation, I'm willing to do that. But when the Canadian government is mandating me to call people by their pronouns and becomes an actual a, a constitutional or a statutory imperative, it's freedom of speech. Correct. That's called freedom of speech. And that's when he did that. And Dave Chappelle, of course, um, is comedic in, in terms of, you know, I'm happy for you to do whatever you want to do. As a libertarian, Dave Chappelle goes, if you want to go be you, go be you. Just don't invite me to that world and force me to be a part of your world. You go be you. Don't force me to be a part of that identity. Right. So, I mean, that's what, and what, what I think. That's the next layer in the conflict, which is where back to that video with Leah, he was the, the female athletes were mandated to have him in the locker room with them. That's where I think, again, we're saying the, the, the mental health of the transgender person is more important than the female athletes who did nothing to change. Yes. 
that's where I think there is that it becomes the responsibility of the choice is too is lacking in recognizing the empathy of the other person because what they want what a transgender person wants is the freedom to be themselves totally agree but then the freedom to live their life we still live in a culture that has established norms that are clearly established my responsibility is then to learn how to adapt in those and then make change. I'm not against having a transgender games. I think that would be awesome. Of course. But recognize that there's too many biological differences that they're not inconsequential. And especially in terms of changing, like you said, Leah never had a uh, sex surgery. surgery. Right. Uh, it's called bottom surgery. Yeah. So Leah, and that's one of the questions I would have is if Leah did have bottom surgery, and which is a vaginoplasty, I believe what the uh, medical term is, would they feel a little bit less um, scared instead of seeing, you know, full intact? I think what she described as male genitalia there. Mm-hmm. That's got to be intimidating. And then we don't even know kind of if, if there was this idea of, of, of Leah, like lingering eyes on female bodies, right? The, the feeling of, 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 of violation of space and things like that. And maybe Leah just wanted to be themselves and just wanted to be intact. And that's something we have to take into consideration but the fact that it was forced and then they had to go through psychological training and, and re-education to say, listen, it sounds like you're being very hateful here. Um, we need to get you into some training. And that just seems to me, you need to grow this with love and with honey, not with vinegar, right? And so I, I think that all of us, if we could look at the lens, this is where we are. You know, we always have to go back on this, Jonathan. We look through the lens of, uh, of love and 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 the pain that's gone through a lot of these folks' um, lives and their and their and their pain and potential suicide, mm-hmm. and how do you come to meet them in a safe place? And um, and, yeah, and let me interject here because this is an important point. Violence against transgender people is four times as high as side gender. Okay, so what? we cannot debate cisgender? whether cisgender. You said you said violence against trans is four times more than what? Cisgender or cisgender? Cisgender. Yes. Yes. Cisgender. Okay. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. I don't even know what I am. I. It's like how to pronounce it. I've never you, actually. You're, you're cisgender. So there's cis yeah, and there's natal. Cisgender, yeah. cisgender and natal gender, right? So cisgender says I identify with the um of the sex of my birth, and a natal gender says that I'm actually also born with you know. That genitalia. I mean, there was. I just saw a little um, fifteen minute as a doctor who does surgeries actually, and he's done some top surgery. So I wanted to get a perspective on that. So there's cisgender and natal gender, but most of us call ourselves. I'm, I'm cis het, for instance, right? That means that mm-hmm. I identify with the um, sex of my birth, and I happen to be heterosexual, right? So you could be yeah, a cis. So let, me, let me read you some of the important because this is sort of the second ring of the conflict. What happens when a transgender person leaves their cocoon of they've come into their own identity and says, okay, I am a transgender person. Then they begin interacting in the world. What happens? So uh, this is from UCLA's Williams Institute study. Transgender people are victimized four times more often than cisgender people. 86.2% of victimizations per 1000 compared to 21% for cisgender. Transgender women and men had higher rates of violent victimization than cisgender women and men. Is it 86 to 23 and 107? So women are a lot more. 
Uh, actually, men are more, which is interesting. Trans men. Uh, yes, more transgender yeah. men are victimized. Okay. One in four transgender women who were victimized thought the incident was a hate crime compared to less than one in 10 cisgender women. Uh, transgender households had a higher rates of property victimization than cisgender households. So it's, it's clear to begin with the idea that is someone who's coming into their sense of freedom is going to encounter a lot of hate. Yes. That is absolutely happening. Would you agree with that? Yes. I think, I think it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's about fear. Um, that it is hate, but it's also fear, right? People fear, that and um they 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 react in in a terrible way right and so violence against why do you so actually let me do this uh why do you think from your perspective why do you think people are afraid of transgender people well jonathan it's because you're what what if people know trans if the trans movement is really 0.5 percent people fear what they don't know that they don't understand and there's I mean, they're called freaks, right? Uh, clearly, right? They're, they're called other kinds of things. And I think that rather than trying to understand, you know, why they've gone through that, it's a shame. And here's the other thing. What's really unfortunate is I've, done, I've seen a lot of pictures of people who used to be a good looking dude or a beautiful young lady, and they've transitioned and they are a shadow of what they used to look like. And there's something, as you can tell, broken in there where they might have taken on more masculine features, but they certainly have taken on darker, less beautiful features. I think, you know, and this is my bad, right? I think Ellen Page, you know, in Inception, for instance, and she played, she was in, um, God, that movie where she had a baby. I forget the name of it, but she she was Ariadne in Inception. You and I love Christopher Nolan. We love Oppenheimer, Interstellar. Yeah. We love Inception. And so she's this architect and I see what she looks like today. She just doesn't look as happy. Um, what I'm getting to you by that is, is that when people do go through a transition, they often don't look like a atypical person. So somebody looks at that and they have this reaction. And instead of trying to understand and go deeper into what caused them to do that, because Ellen Page clearly in her, in, in, I don't know what Ellen's new name is. It's, I think it, I, I apologize for not knowing, but Ellen clearly had massive internal concerns, right? There was, there was this idea that I'm not in this right body, right? So she, Ellen had a double mastectomy, right? It's Elliot. Elliot now, yes. And yes. Elliot's got the scars now, right? And Elliot's, mm-hmm. you know. And show them. Yeah. Exactly. I think it was a GQ or there was a, there was definitely mm-hmm. a magazine thing. What I'm getting at is, is that this is not that different from the violence against African-Americans as they started to become more and more populace, right? And had more and more presence. And I think people feared that and they started saying, what's going on here? Why can't they, you know, be in their own community? It happened with the gay community with the famous Matthew, Matthew Shepard getting, you know, really violently killed and um, in, in like Montana or something. And now we're just seeing another version of it um, coming out and it's all based on, on, on fear. Um, but it, unfortunately it doesn't also help that there seems to be a very large narrative being pushed along amongst the mainstream media and, you know, social media that you better get used to it. Um, and, and, and that, that's not the way it, it shouldn't be forced. It should be, it should be understood in the lens of love as opposed to any kind of 
forced process. You know what I mean? Well, let's jump into the hard part. Yeah. Which is what is essentially called the woke culture. I'm going to play you a video. Or do you think you are? Well, I, I'm a male. Okay, well, I think maybe I think you're a woman. No, legally, I'm a male. Oh, you, it says on my driver's license that I'm a male. I said I don't believe you. It doesn't matter. Exactly. It doesn't matter if you don't believe me. No, it doesn't matter because biologically. What gender, what gender do you think I am? I would assume you're female. Yeah, see, you're making assumptions. Yes. I identify as non binary. Hey, I don't, I, respectfully, it, it doesn't matter. It matters my gender expression. It matters the way that I'm allowed to express myself. It matters what bathroom I use. It matters who I'm allowed to live with. It affects every aspect of my life. So you're saying. What pronoun what, should I use? You should use they, them pronouns. So you're saying that you and what don't. If I don't? Me. What if I don't? If you don't, I would consider that disrespectful. And that's actually an act of violence to misgender a trans. It's an act of violence. That is an act of violence to intentionally misgender someone. Okay, so that's I would a crime. Consider that you an act of violence against you is a crime. We have no idea how many pronouns there are. We can never know how many pronouns there are. And to not use a proper pronoun you could ask. is an act of violence against them. How would you respond? To me, this is not an act of violence. It is an in, inappropriate, mean-spirited way of interacting with somebody. So again, um, I, I think it is. I think it is a terrible dereliction of the English language to tell somebody that they're, just because they're not calling you by their preferred pronouns, that's an act of violence against them. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that, um, and. I think it's inappropriate. I, I think here's a perfect, you know what? What's inappropriate? Here's an, here's an example. There's a doctor, an MD, and a chiropractor that are being mm -hmm. introduced um, at, at a dinner conversation. Mm -hmm. And the guy who's brought them together says, hey, Bill, you're a you know chiropractor. And hey, Jim, you're a doctor. And the doctor says to the chiropractor, well, you might be a gentleman, sir, but you're no doctor. And he turns to the other guy and goes, well, you might be a doctor, sir, but you're no gentleman, right? So the doctor bags on the chiropractor because he's not a true doctor, right? He's not a true medical school guy. But the, but the key of that whole moment is like, well, you might be a doctor, sir, but you're sure not a gentleman. And I think that's the, 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 the person who looked worse in that situation was the MD who was, calling, who was not calling the, the chiropractor a doctor. And so what I'm getting at with that whole concept is... Mm -hmm. If we want to live in a world that tries to get along and be unified in as mm -hmm. many ways as possible, I think you should do whatever you can to help out that process. But for somebody to force the construct of law, of like physical mm -hmm. law, let's say this is actual hate crime, this is actual statutory. If you call me mm -hmm. by, if, if it's on camera and you've been you've been caught like doing it, or maybe maybe you screwed up three or four times, and then they really it want to nail you. It's right? not the same as I'm going to kill you. As oh, of course not. And that's the thing is why is he or she or them, they, whatever is misgendering that concept of an act of violence. I, it may feel like it, but that does not rise to the concept of violence. But here's the problem is I see the transgender person saying, when is someone going to fucking recognize me? And I think that's the tension here is that next level of freedom is because I agree you can't mandate against free speech and say you have to. And if you don't, that's an act of violence. It's, it's kind of a silly argument, but from the position of the transgender person, it's much more about recognition as a category 
And I think that's what the world is pushing back on because it's coming fast. It's coming into schools. Most transgender people are children. So that's that's the hard part is that it's the exploratory nature of it is freaking a ton of people out. That Let's go to the next ring then. When it starts impacting children. Can okay. we take a quick pause before we go there? So yes. I, I want to embrace and love on everybody who's on a genuine journey. I want you to be as honest as you want to be, dude. Yeah. I want to embrace anybody who's on that journey and who's mm-hmm. lived a life of pain and they're in their eight, they're in their twenties or maybe they're younger, maybe they're, you know, 40 years old and they go, I don't know. You know, I don't believe in God anymore. You know, I've, this is a, a crisis of faith right now. We're actually seeing a crisis of body dysphoria. When Riley Gaines, one of these swimmers, was going to be at a, at, a, at a um at a university, kind of protesting and saying why she was fighting for her own fighting mm-hmm. in her own swim lanes against biologically female athletes, there was a room. She was assaulted. There was thirty, forty, or fifty, sixty people that were there that were gathered, and they were full of hate and vitriol. Mm-hmm. And I believe, Jonathan, there's a lot of people who have lived their lives that been marginalized, but because they're not fit in really well, they've had, they're looking at this as an actual opportunity to get their um, spotlight. And the people that are violent and the people, there are people that after that transgender person shot up that, you know, school in Nashville, there was these transgender people that were on video, like freaking, Hey, we're, we're going to fight back now. We're going to, we're going to come out and we're going to freaking start shooting people. Those mm-hmm. people that are getting violent and, and have vitriol and like, you need to do this. For my sake, right? That is not, I think, the embodiment of the people we're looking for here. And no, that's when it becomes authoritarian. Is that correct. the mass has to accommodate the few? Correct. And going back to my my daughter Ari, she's got thirty percent of her high school um, drama uh, class was trans. I met Lewis right. and, and Ren, and I met a lot of these kids who were just. They were, they were in pain and they were trying to figure out that new expression, being creative, surrounding themselves with good people who loved on each other. And they had a lot of fun and they were very entertaining and they were amazing, right? And that's a different kind of construct and, and something to support and mm-hmm. to try to embrace. And this, this um, young guy, Ren, who's transitioned, um, I, I heard Ren's voice. He, his voice was deeper, right? And he drew this amazing picture of our dog that died, you know, that had sarcoma, osteosarcoma. And yeah. there's just, there's some healthy stuff going on there. And this community that brings and lifts people up. That's the kind of thing that I would look to, um, you know, support and as much as I can. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yet at the same time, I am regaling against this forced authoritarian vitriolic, you better do this or else they'll be hell to pay. And that just doesn't seem to be the, the right um, temper uh, and temperament and, uh, of, of the movement. Yeah, I think I think we both agree is that um, it, there has, in other words, and we're speaking from positions of privilege as white males. Of course. Okay, I want to call that out. Uh, it's the, the safe space. My interest is the safe healing space, not power. Of course. Uh, there's no, we don't want force. Um, and, the, the, what's happening, I think, is the surge of freedom, and then they're trying to deal with all of the consequences of the rings. People are afraid. You know, why would you change what God made? Things like that. But here's what's interesting is when I sat down with Debbie, 
she told me that when she was, I think, a child, like seven, she knew. And I think part of what you and I have wrestled with as we've talked about this offline is this concept of when should children be allowed to make those kinds of decisions and then to throw a little bit of a ringer into it when the parent gets involved to kind of push the child into that. So that here's the thing. My interest is children are the most vulnerable part of this. I agree. And so what, what's, what's a healthy response look like from your perspective? Well, I think that here's, here's the, if I want to be as objective as possible, I want to start talking about the science of clinical trials of what attempts there are to come alongside um, these kids in terms of helping them, you know, with puberty blockers or with medication. Now, there's a lot of people we're, we're holding off on that. But what I want to understand is, let us see a group of people like the tomboy girls, right? I've seen a lot of people on Twitter who go, oh my God, I was hitting baseballs. I was playing with trucks and I'm now mom of five, yada, 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 right? But by God, back then, if you had actually, if you had actually go, if you had picked me up when I was nine and said, okay, I think you're a dude now, let's go. That might've been something happened. They're looking back. So I don't think we have enough clinical evidence to show what happens in this group of 1000 kids where 22% of them feel like they're kind of out of sorts and Bill likes playing with Barbies and, mm -hmm. and Sasha likes playing with sports cars. Right. Right. And even then I, I think it's a silly kind of thing because uh, there shouldn't be any, I mean, guys wear pink, right? Like this, this silly notion of boys mm -hmm. wear blue and girls wear pink. Look is, at what happened with Barbie with the movie. Guys can yeah. wear pink. I, I I didn't yeah exactly I didn't watch it yet I only saw snippets of of the of the kids uh, watching it but what I'm getting at is that we need better statistics we need better stuff to say hey listen we, we've taken a thousand kids and we put them on puberty blockers they were at 12, 11, 12 years old they they feel like they're out of sorts let's arrest this puberty get them to go the direction that they feel that their body is telling them to go or their heart is telling them to go. And let's look at that and see, does that actually incre incre increase their level of, of life in a positive way or does it not? And I think we're, we're still too soon. That's my biggest thing right now. I certainly, you and I both love our brains. We talk, you talk about amygdala all the time. We talk about the, the neocortex, the prefrontal cortex and it, what blows that, my mind. Go there. Go there because I think that's one of the most important parts. Yeah, the we all know that uh, 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 Hertz and Avis will not allow you to rent a freaking car until you turn twenty five. I don't care if you're driving when you're sixteen; you're not we touching. Can't go to war until you're eighteen. Yeah, you can't drink until you're twenty one. You can't vote. Why? Because you don't have command of your prefrontal cortex yet. And 100%. To, the point you just made is. Here's the thing. I think there should be a universal mandate about any sex change transition. Counseling, fine. Explore it, fine. But no sec, no physiological, no anything physical that you can ingest until around 11 because that's when the prefrontal cortex comes on. And then you're – and the reason why we don't let you go to war or vote is because you suck at making good decisions when you're a child. Yes. And so I look at, but, but 
to my own point, I look at this and go, how would I respond to Debbie to say, should I stop you? And I think if it's, that's the tension for me is I don't want to keep Debbie from freedom. Well, but I also want to help Debbie make healthy choices if that's her path. So that that's the tension for me. If Dave became Debbie at a young age, so Dave had a wife and kids. Am I yes. not wrong? Wife I and mean, two kids. Yes. Classic, beautiful family, middle Americana, right? Yep. Evangelical community. Everybody just going through the motions, right? And I'm imagining there was a lot of pain and confusion. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I had a good friend from college. Um, you know, um, he was, everybody always thought he was gay in college. There was a lot of gay guys in my fraternity. Um, and quite frankly, everybody loved him. And and he He's ended like, up getting married. Hey, you're gay. When are you yeah. going to win? Right. Yeah. He just came yeah. out literally two or three years ago. He's been married to this gal uh, of his, his sweetheart from, from college, you know, for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And the question really comes down to, could Dave, if he had transitioned to Debbie at an earlier stage and had been more freedom to do that, could he have um, done that? Now, you and I, as we look at life and we look at our, our, our linear time and, and Sean and what everybody would say, did he create a wonderful life for these two kids and for his wife? And is everything better off? Looking at the entire equation, I've transitioned now. Yes, we caused pain, but here's what the ultimate thing is. Is there even a question of whether, listen, if I had been able to go back in time and I, if I'd been in a world today that was gender affirming, I would have avoided all that pain and suffering for my wife and future kids. Who knows? Mm -hmm. right? I, you, that's a question we might have to ask Debbie when we bring her on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's tough because, um, well, let's do this. Let's kind of bring it home to sort of what is sort of the outer rings of the, of the circles is is this notion that all transgender people are pedophiles. Okay. And it's a huge concern for people. I don't think it's true. If you knew Debbie, you would go, no, that's not happening. It's not, it's, it's not a universal, you know, it's simply, what does it call it? A, a caricature. But let me play this video for you. Cause I think this is going to kind of bring it home. It yeah. really is. Okay. So here's, Here's really the final point I want to end on is this concept of there is a public notion that's completely unfair, statistically untrue, but and needs to die, which is that transgender people are predisposed to pedophilia or are pedophiles. And I, I found this video that I think uh, sums it up nicely. Since in the last six months, there have been 2,145 cases for sex crimes involving children. Recently, there were two more Republican politicians, a Mississippi state senator, along with three pastors, three church employees, and no less than 19 Catholic priests. Out of the 34 cases involving political figures, one of them was a Democrat. The reason I'm bringing that up is because it's Republicans have been screaming about drag queens and transgender. And in the last six months, there hasn't been one single drag queen. And out of the 2,145 cases that have been recorded, three have been transgender. And guess what? None of those have been in bathrooms. So out of all of those that have been added, police officers, teachers, coaches, in half a year, those involved in the religious industry 
are by far the largest employment group at 13.5%. Evangelical pastors holding up well above 6%, which means in the past year, your child has more than 69.5% more of a chance to be abused by an evangelical pastor than a transgender person. But it's drag queens and transgender that our kids should stay away from. What do you think? Um, you know, I, I think that that is a little disingenuous from this standpoint. Right. If, so? if, the transgen- if, if, if the transgender, and let's say it's a, a, a biological male transgender that's a, it's a female and that's perpetra- per- perpetrating stuff, that person supposedly makes up 0.5% of the population. Of mm-hmm. course, there's going to be a lot less cases of, of that. But there's an entire Twitter handle called Gays Against Groomers. They they feel these are LGB these are these are, these are the LGP but not the T community right. There's an entire movement. It's called LGB but not the T. And mm-hmm. if you look at an amazing interview between Bill Maher, he invited Andrew Sullivan from the Daily Beast and a gal named Katie Herzog, who feel their entire. Yeah, these people are, are are left, and they're both gay. Katie's gay, and so is Andrew. He's at, at the Daily Beast. He's quite liberal. Well, I'm sorry, I thought you were talking about Andrew Tate. No, Andrew Sullivan. Andrew Sullivan. Sullivan. He, he's Thank a you. blogger. He's an author. Oh, I he's, love Andrew Sullivan. Yeah, he's a great writer. So these guys are both on saying we, our movement's been co-opted. Right now, going back to the whole process, I I don't. I I, I think here here's 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 what um. Here's the declin- Here's the delineation that needs to be made for the people that you know and I know, mm-hmm. my my daughter's friends, um, your friend Debbie, the people that are in that particular process that are are hurting and want just the freedom to be themselves and express themselves. Absolutely, hundred percent. It's a terrible um, schema to say these people are all groomers, but then there are people who are taking advantage mm-hmm. of these scenarios and the cases of people being assaulted in stalls because they've been able to use a female's bathroom are all over the place. I'm not saying that it's proportionally worse or not. I'm just saying what that guy's, um, you know, statistics is, is, is cherry picked out, out of the blue. It'd be like saying, well, you know, how do you mean it's cherry picked? Cause all he did was pick the last six months. What I'm saying is he, he, he didn't mention proportionally. I mean, it'd be like saying this, who causes more deaths in the country, uh, whites or or Hispanics, right? And it's probably whites, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, because um, we're the whites. Who causes more, you know, yeah, yeah, et cetera. I mean, you, you can't just say this is the purport. It has to be per capita. It has to be on another level. Now, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, there's two levels of people here. I believe there are people who are taking advantage of it. And here's what I mean by this. Now that it's become more mainstream, that's what allows the abuse to come in and take over. The mm-hmm. abuse we already just saw. Guys said, I'm non-binary. They show up and they do something like stupid and they go, oh, I'm non-binary. And they co-opted that entire tech event for women that was designed to empower them. I mm-hmm. believe that people, um, you know, you know, and I know we, had, we have a differ, difference of opinion on are we basically good? Or are we basically bad? I think what we're opening up the, the, the hood here and we're saying, how bad can people really get? And the, the, these people, I mean, the entire, um, the entire campus of Brown, 40% identifies as LGBTQ, right? That, that those kinds of, um, th- those kinds of ideas would have been physiologically, genetically, uh, statistically impossible. Um, 
10, 15 years ago, right? Nobody would have agreed that were the case. So either A, they're only allowing LGBTQ into Brown or B, they're finding that by self-identifying as LGBTQ, they're going to get a better chance of getting into Brown and that's going to help them with their processes, right? So this is what I fear. I fear that the people that are truly hurting, that ones that are just striving for being themselves, they've been beat up their whole lives and they're ready to make that transition to be their free self they're the ones who are going to get co-opted um, by the people that are taking advantage of, of the of the system. That's my concern. Yeah, and I think there's also um, here's the reality: is as any human being comes into their own sense of freedom and begins to explore the rings of how they interact in the world, once we devolve into predatory, that's where that's where it's a hard no. And I think. What needs to happen is almost a sense of, I don't know, because then, like you said, there's the groups that says, you know, they, like there is always, and I don't know what statistically it is, there's always that category that wants sex with children, okay? Like pedophiles are, pedophiles are actually becoming more empowered the more the gates of freedom open up. They are. Because, and, but that predatory element is where things have got to be a hard no for me. Because a child cannot fundamentally understand the same level as an adult. And when you involve sex, then it becomes highly physical and therefore highly mental and physical trauma. So well, that's George my Takei, George Takei was um, George Takei, Sulu in, in uh, Star Trek, Love I guess, was taken advantage of when he was 13 or 14 in, in camp by a camp counselor. And he said it was wonderful. So well, he maybe he was really disposed to, uh, I, he was probably already, I don't know if he was, I'm just wondering is the understanding of it is he was gay. And so that was an enjoyable experience for him because he felt inside he was gay. Um, the question is, does that cause homosexuality? My, my mom was a counselor and she actually, uh, when she worked at city team, she counseled a lot of men who came out because they were essentially prostitutes. City team is a drug and rehab counseling center, people on the streets, people coming through the crime systems. And she said a hundred percent of the men that she interviewed, small subset had all identified they'd been sexually abused and, and identified as gay. Wow. And so it's a very small subset, but abuse was common. Now I'm not making the statement that that's true for all gay men because I have a lot of gay family members that it's just who they were. Um, but it's when it leads to that predatory element that, that there's gotta be hard no, because we have to protect the children. And I think that's the way to wrap this whole thing up is I am all for freedom of anybody coming to a sense of human health and mental health to say, uh, to come to congruence with the self. That's all I want for people. And with that comes a responsibility as you interact in the world, just like I have. I have the same sense of rules. And when it becomes predatory or when it becomes unfairly advantageous or predatory, because I think the Leah thing in the women's bathroom, that's predatory to, from my perspective, because it's, it's causing mental harm on all the girls. It they is. all testify. And um, that's when it needs to – 
we need to pull back and say, hey, there needs to be more responsibility. So we need to partner with the transgender community to lift up their sense of freedom, but also hold them to the responsibility of any citizen as part of this community. Yeah. How would you respond? Why don't you close this? I, I agree 100%. I think that um, the conversation needs to come with understanding and it needs to come with real good evidence-based um, scenarios of really healthy um, explorations of, of transition and not the predatory kind, not the forced kind. When, when you see somebody who really was in 400th place in the men's division and becomes first place, you know, in the women's division, you could see there's an, there's, there's an incentive there. There's, there's, it seems like it's an ulterior motive completely with the fact that they haven't had bottom surgery and haven't done that full transition. So if it's truly about dysphoria, then you would have undergone gender reassignment surgery instead of taking advantage of being on the podium. And I think getting in the spotlight that you didn't want before. All that being said, we, we, we do want to lead with the lens of love. We, we are in a world that's transitioning, that, um, <laughs> that's evolving, right? And it is, yeah. And, and so, um, I, I think that that's at the, at the end of it. We 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 live with the lens of love and understanding, but we also have to have hard kinds of. Um, we we still need the science, and we need real kind of time frames to be able to understand what the repercussions of this look like, and to come up with a better, healthy environment for everybody. I agree. Yeah. So uh, this has been another interesting episode of Living in the Matrix. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, please comment, share your thoughts. Hopefully, we'll get some good conversation around this. And uh, subscribe if you haven't. would love to hear from our listeners. If you know anybody that you think would be a good guest on our show, please let us know. There is a, a, a way to share with us on the website, livinginthematrix.ai. And uh, wish you all the best. Say goodbye, Rich. Bye, everybody. Stay warm out there. All right, peace, much love.